I'll never forget being a kid in 1987 when on primetime television, they aired an animated TV movie called The Jetsons Meet the Flintstones. And while the Flintstones debuted on primetime television in 1960, during my lifetime, it was only ever on during the daytime. So it was the coolest thing in the world for me to see cartoons at night. The rules had been broken. What had previously seemed impossible to me was now possible. The Stone Age rocks the future, and the future devolves to the Stone Age. To some critics, though, it may have seemed like a blatant way for Hanna-Barbera to just flaunt the fact that the Jetsons is basically just the Flintstones in the opposite extreme of the universe's timeline. Now, remember, I was a kid when this movie came out, so I didn't have much to compare it to at the time. But this kind of television crossover has been a part of the medium long before cartoons were doing it. And sometimes the guest stars and supporting cast of an established television series, usually a sitcom, will even get a show of their own called a spinoff. <laughs> The Honeymooners is an early litmus test for shows that basically rob other shows of its character types, episode formulas, and one often overlooked contribution to the situational comedy or sitcom, the catchphrase. Jackie Gleason's portrayal of the irritable New York City bus driver Ralph Cramden would regularly contradict himself within the same episode by threatening to send his wife Alice bang zoom to the moon in one scene and, after two commercial breaks, remarking to her, Baby, you're the greatest. And on more than one occasion, the Flintstones were accused of ripping off the Honeymooners. And the Simpsons were accused of ripping off the Flintstones. And then Family Guy was accused of ripping off the Simpsons. And after 10 years of superfans begging Hollywood via the interwebs, Family Guy and the Simpsons finally did a crossover episode of their own that revolved around the two cartoons brands of beer, Duff and Pawtucket Pat. Now, I am an ardent fan of both of these shows independently. But there was something uncomfortable about the crossover episode, and I didn't really care for it, despite the fact that I had long awaited it for over a decade. And I'm not really sure what I expected, but I felt that the Family Guy tone dominated the episode, and made some of the simpler things that Homer Simpson did, which is usually silly, somehow seem darker than they normally do. Conversely, when the show Futurama and the Simpsons did a crossover, it worked much better and didn't make me feel uncomfortable at all. And I have no doubt 
that Matt Groening's involvement with both series played a major role in its success, as it was more in line with the Jetsons meet the Flintstones. You know, time-traveling characters from two different TV series by the same creator. TV crossovers and spinoffs are an ongoing phenomenon that is often balked by creative purists. But without crossovers, we would never have seen Freddy vs. Jason, Godzilla vs. King Kong, and Batman vs. Superman. Which, by the way, could not have been a more lame movie or premise. Superman would kill everyone. Case closed. And... How else but with a crossover could Abbott and Costello have met the Wolfman, Mummy, Frankenstein, and Dracula? And every now and then, television producers are able to take these familiar formulas and utilize them to give life to secondary characters that become breakout stars in a spinoff. The penultimate spinoff for me has got to be The Simpsons which got its start as these crudely drawn, minute-long segments between sketches on the late 80s sketch comedy program, The Tracy Ullman Show, which aired for three years on the then very young Fox network. I was a devout fan of The Tracy Ullman Show, greatly due to the delightful yellow cartoons starring my then-hero, Bart Simpson, Eat My Shorts. And I distinctively remember seeing a cover of TV Guide at the grocery store in 1990 with the Simpson family sitting on the couch, watching TV, and Bart is sitting upside down, drinking a can of soda through a straw, And I made my mom get it for me so I could read all about my favorite little drawings getting their own television program. And you have to understand, I videotaped every Tracy Ullman episode so I could rewatch those cartoons and learned how to set the VCR in case I couldn't be home. And I even spent my hard-earned allowance on new VHS tapes because I refused to tape over any old episodes. So when The Simpsons became its own series, I lost my mind, asked for a 10-pack of blank VHS tapes for Christmas that year, and I have been watching religiously ever since. Thank God DVR exists now, because I am still recording the show weekly. I am the truest Simpsons superfan that you could ever hope to meet. The Simpsons is so genius, in fact, that in their eighth season, the writers of The Simpsons exposed just how ridiculous some television spinoffs can be in their episode, The Simpsons Spinoff Showcase, offering three vignettes. Chief Wiggum P.I., a Chief Wiggum Principal Skinner buddy cop show. The Lovematic Grandpa, pairing Moe Sislak and his love-testing machine, who is, quote, inhabited by the ghost of my best friend's dead father, Grandpa Simpson. And the Simpson Family Smile Time Variety Hour, a spoof of the Brady Bunch Variety Hour, recasting Lisa Simpson as a teenage cheerleader. 
Okay, now that I've got the Simpsons praise and biases out of my system, let's start with some classic TV crossovers going all the way back to Petticoat Junction, which was a 1960s television series about a mother and her three daughters, Betty Joe, Billy Joe, and Bobby Joe, who are running the Shady Rest Hotel adjacent to the Hooterville Cannonball Steam Train Depot and was the parent show to its spin-off series, Green Acres. But Petticoat Junction itself owes its existence to the television show The Beverly Hillbillies, from which it was spun off via the character Granny Clampett. All three of these rural-urban shows were produced by Paul Henning, which is why they intermingled so fabulously well. And Granny even crossed over to another classic television series when she made an appearance on Mr. Ed. Wilbur. Being a producer of two TV shows certainly makes it easy to move characters from one to the other, which is actually a fun gimmick that I'd like to see more of, if for no other reason than you can do it. And in the mid-1960s, William Dozier did just that, with the Green Hornet and Cato, played by Bruce Lee, being incorporated into a two-part episode of the campy Batman series starring Adam West called A Piece of the Action and Batman Satisfaction. Hey, that rhymes. And the crossover was explained by the fact that both Batman and the Green Hornet's alter egos, Bruce Wayne and Britt Reed, were actually childhood rivals. And while the two heroes vie to solve the same crime with their respective sidekicks, Bruce Lee could have crushed both Adam West and Burt Ward simultaneously. Holy Cato, Batman! The Mary Tyler Moore Show gave us three very specifically titled spinoffs. The first one was Rhoda, which, in addition to being a vehicle for Valerie Harper also features a young Julie Kavner, the voice of Marge Simpson, as Rhoda's sister with whom she resides in this sitcom set in New York City. The second Mary Tyler Moore spinoff was titled Phyllis, starring Cloris Leachman, who had played Mary's landlady, Phyllis Lindstrom, on the Mary Tyler Moore show, before her character moved from Minnesota to San Francisco following the death of her husband, Lars. And the third spinoff from the Mary Tyler Moore Show was called Lou Grant, starring Ed Asner as the editor of a fictional newspaper, the Los Angeles Tribune, who also moves to California after being fired from the WJM-TV station on the Mary Tyler Moore Show. That's okay, Lou. You got spunk. Even the game shows of the 1970s got in on the crossover spinoff fad by turning Match Game into the more saucy and ribald Match Game PM 
featuring a very popular celebrity blank filling in guesser by the name of Richard Dawson, who was so frequently chosen by contestants for his logical answers and ability to read people that he was promoted to his most famous role. No, not Damon Killian from The Running Man, but the unapologetic kisser and flirter of everyone's daughter and wife on national TV, the original host of The Family Feud. Survey says... And this seems like an appropriate time to point out some other game show catchphrases like The Price is Right's Come On Down. Is that your final answer from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I am not smarter than a fifth grader. And you are the weakest link. Goodbye. And I would also classify all the competition reality programs out there to be game shows too, who all, for some reason, seem to use an expression that makes absolutely no sense to me at all, to throw someone under the bus. Now, I can understand being pushed in front of a bus or someone throwing away your bus pass, preventing you from getting on it, but to be thrown under a bus is a physical impossibility and a reality show staple phrase and cliche. And while you can get thrown under the bus on any reality show, they all have their own specifically unique taglines of elimination. The Apprentice gave us You're Fired, and Donald Trump still uses that one a lot in his current reality show titled The Man Who Fired Everyone. Other elimination tags are The Tribe Has Spoken I'm Sorry You've Been Eliminated from the Race Please Pack Up Your Knives and Go Your Tour Ends Here You've Been Chopped You Must Leave the Chateau One Day You're In and the Next Day You're Out Alfita Sane Now Sashay Away Take Off Your Jacket and Leave Hell's Kitchen and I'm Sorry we will not be producing your show. The late 1970s Lee Majors series, The Six Million Dollar Man, and its Lindsay Wagner spinoff, The Bionic Woman, teamed up on more than one occasion in a two-part episode titled The Return of Bigfoot and a three-part episode called Kill Oscar. Then you have the TV series Alice, which was actually based on a 1974 film called Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Set in Phoenix, Arizona, the role of Alice, played by Linda Lavin, travels from New Jersey to Los Angeles with her young son to launch her singing career after her husband dies in a trucking accident. While en route to L.A., her car breaks down in Phoenix, where she takes a job as a waitress at Mel's Diner, I guess to pay for the car. I'm not really sure why she abandons her dream so quickly. But regardless, Alice works at Mel's, where she is flanked by the other brassy waitresses serving as comic relief, one of whom is the also-sassy Florence Jean Castleberry, or Flo, 
who gave us another classic TV catchphrase, Kiss My Grits. And Flo was so popular that she got her own series that only lasted for a season from 1980 to 1981, where she returns to her land of origin, Cowtown, Texas. Scattered Curiosity, Kiss My Grits, was originally written Kiss My Honeydew in the movie Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. But it wasn't funny, so they changed it. And the actress who played Flo, Polly Holiday, has refused every request to say the infamous line since the show was taken off the air. The 1974 NYPD sitcom Barney Miller, played by Hal Linden, was set entirely in the fictional 12th precinct of Greenwich Village, New York. Abe Vigoda, who played Sergeant Philip K. Fish on Barney Miller, filmed his spin-off series titled Fish while he was still actively making appearances on Barney Miller. Fish concentrated more on the sergeant's domestic life with his wife Bernice and their brood of impoverished foster children, one of whom was played by the future Willis Drummond, Todd Bridges. And while I have never seen an episode of it, Fish enjoyed an impressive eight-year run. Scattered Curiosity... The baseline that introduces Barney Miller's theme song is often ranked in the top 20 of the best TV theme songs of all time. And in my opinion, it is every bit as excellent as the baseline for the NBC sitcom Night Court. And can we just talk about theme songs for a minute? I love them. And so many of these songs make great additions to any playlists, like The Jeffersons, Good Times, Different Strokes, Growing Pains, Friends, Family Ties, The Flintstones, Malcolm in the Middle, which is by my favorite band, They Might Be Giants, The Golden Girls, Perfect Strangers, Sanford and Son, Cheers, Webster, Gimme a Break, all in the Family, The Facts of Life, Three's Company, The Muppet Show, The Monkees, Welcome Back Cotter, The Brady Bunch, The Twilight Zone, The Munsters, The Adams Family, The Love Boat. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. And I would sing every one of these songs right now if I was permitted to do so. But lucky for you, I'm not. Moving on. Soap was an off-the-wall television show that was created for people like me who love dry wit satire topped with a quirky sense of humor and oozing with melodramatic overtones and mystery. And if you are unfamiliar with Soap, it was a primetime parody of daytime soap operas that ran from 1977 to 1981. And if you manage to find old episodes of Soap online, keep your eyes out for a young, up-and-coming Billy Crystal in select episodes. Soap also helped the career of its snarky butler, Benson Dubois, 
who was such a popular character that he himself got a spin-off series simply titled Benson that ran longer than its parent series, Soap. Scattered curiosity, the mansion featured in the opening credits of Benson is the same mansion that was used for the 1993 film adaptation of the TV series The Beverly Hillbillies. BJ and the Bear was a television program about Billy Joe McKay, BJ, who was a freelance trucker traveling the country's highways with his sidekick, Bear, often getting caught in some crime-solving hijinks to win the favor of the many lovely lady guest stars he would encounter from town to town. And this TV series was an attempt to keep up with the popular cross-country themes that were romanticized by the 1975 song Convoy, the film's White Line Fever and Smokey and the Bandit, and the TV show Moving On. And BJ and the Bear paved the way for its popular character, Sheriff Elroy Lobo, played by Claude Atkins, to have continued life in his own series, The Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo. And Claude Atkins has another connection to this entire theme because in addition to being Sheriff Lobo on his own series and BJ and the Bear, he also starred on the aforementioned trucking series Moving On, but not as Sheriff Lobo. Scattered Curiosity... The bear in BJ and the Bear is actually a chimpanzee. I should have mentioned that earlier. All in the Family was a spin-off making machine, conceiving the Jeffersons, who were the contentious neighbors of Archie Bunkers, before moving on up to the east side to a deluxe apartment in the sky. Ah, stifle it. And then the Jeffersons spun off a show of its own, called Checking In, that centered on their housekeeper, Florence. And then there's Maud, another successful spinoff from All in the Family, starring B. Arthur as Maud Findlay, who was first introduced as Edith Bunker's cousin on All in the Family, whose catchphrase was, God'll get you for that. And on this spinoff, Maud has a housekeeper named Florida Evans. Does that name sound familiar? It should. It's the mom from Good Times, which was a spinoff of Maud. Interestingly enough, when Good Times became its own series, it made no mention of Maud or the fact that Maud took place in Westchester County, New York, and Good Times took place in the Chicago neighborhood Cabrini Green. And Good Times introduced another classic catchphrase into the American lexicon via J.J. James Jr. Evans. Dynamite. Although Norman Lear's darling All in the Family also spawned unsuccessful spinoffs too. One of them was called Gloria, which revolved around Archie and Edith Bunker's daughter, Gloria Stivick, 
played by Sally Struthers, who is newly single after shedding the weight of her former husband, Meathead. I mean, Michael, who was played by Rob Reiner on the Parent series, All in the Family. Gloria fared a slightly better run of 21 episodes than Checking In, which only had a lifespan of four episodes. After which, Florence returned to the Jeffersons. Three's Company is one of those shows that I loved as a kid, despite all of the sexual innuendo flying right over my head. And when I see reruns of it today, I can hardly believe some of the things that they got away with. And while most television programs would suffer from the loss of a popular cast member, Three's Company managed to survive the rotating cast of all three of its blonde female roommates, Chrissy, Cindy, and Terry, plus two landlords, Mr. Roper and Mr. Furley. The Ropers were spun off into their own series for a year, and in 1984, John Ritter's character, Jack Tripper, moved in with his girlfriend Vicky and her father for the failed one-season spinoff, Three's a Crowd. Neither of the two Three's Company spinoffs enjoyed much acclaim, which infuriated Norman Fell, Mr. Roper, who never wanted to leave Three's Company in the first place, and he was even told that he could return to the show if the Ropers failed. But by then, they already had Don Knotts, and he had chemistry with the cast, and he was well-liked, and, you know, that's Hollywood, baby. Scattered curiosity, Billy Crystal actually auditioned for the role of Jack Tripper before ultimately being cast as Jody Dallas on Soap. And Lonnie Anderson auditioned for the role of Chrissy on Three's Company, but would later find her television fame on WKRP in Cincinnati. Another great TV theme song. Bewitched is also a show that survived a major casting shift when the role of Darren Stevens, or Durwood, ended up being played by two different dicks in their eight-year span on TV. Dick York, from 1964 to 1969, and Dick Sargent, from 1969 to 1972. And America hardly noticed. I mean, go online and look at pictures of these guys back to back. It's eerie how two separate dudes, both named Dick, would both be so similar looking. Bewitched also had a short-lived spinoff about Darren and Samantha's half-witch daughter, Tabitha, when she is a young woman in her 20s who works at a television station in Los Angeles. Happy Days was also a competent spinoff maker, giving us Mork and Mindy, Laverne and Shirley, and the less successful Joni Loves Chachi, with Fonzie being the degree of separation and liaison between the three spin-off series. In fact, an episode of Happy Days is the Mork and Mindy pilot, referred to in Hollywood as a backdoor pilot. And in it, Mork from Ork 
a naive alien played by the insanely genius Robin Williams, is talking about his first visit to the planet Earth when he met Arthur Fonzarelli, the Fonz, who set Mork up on a date with Laverne, Penny Marshall, of Laverne and Shirley. Nanu Nanu. The Fonz is so cool, creating spin-offs with the snap of his fingers and fixing things by hitting them. Hey. Fonzie would pop up on Laverne and Shirley from time to time during its run, but I don't believe that he ever visited the Mork and Mindy set. And during Happy Days' decade-long tenure on television, the series also begat a few more briefly-lived spin-offs. Blanksy's Beauties in 1977, Out of the Blue in 1979, and the Fonz and Happy Days Gang animated series from 1980 to 1982. CBS delivered the massively successful series Dallas, which graced mankind with one of its most beloved cliffhangers in television history, leaving the entire world to debate who shot J.R. And its spin-off series, Knott's Landing, was actually a show concept prior to Dallas that creator David Jacobs wasn't able to produce until Dallas had become a proven success. Characters from Dallas and Knott's Landing met up on more than one occasion because the show is connected through Gary and Valene Ewing. Scattered curiosity, Knott's Landing is one of the longest-running primetime dramas ever, rivaling Bonanza and Gunsmoke. Dynasty was ABC's answer to Dallas and was a show that my mom watched while I did homework in the kitchen when I was a kid, and I'll never forget how surprised I was by how many times they said the word bitch. I could only ever get away with saying it if I was referring to our female dog, and even then I was towing the line of getting my mouth washed out with soap. From 1981 to 1989, Alexis Colby and Blake and Crystal Carrington gave us more naughty primetime smut than just one series could handle, so they utilized their surplus of it in their spin-off series, The Colbys. Sometimes referred to as Dynasty 2, The Colbys ran from 1985 to 1987 and featured Charlton Heston, Barbara Stanwyck, and Ricardo Montalban, a fantasy island acclaim. De Plains, De Plains. Magnum P.I., the Tom Selleck vehicle about an easygoing private investigator who lives at the Robin's Nest beachfront estate in Hawaii with his trusty mustache, had TV crossovers with two other popular detective shows, Simon and Simon and Murder, She Wrote. And while we're on the topic of shows set in Hawaii, Chin Ho, Kamakona, and Kono from Hawaii 5 Bookum Dano, once found themselves on an episode of the 1980s TV show MacGyver, 
who is a fascinating character that we are actually going to explore a little bit more in a few episodes from now. So stand by for that. Scattered Curiosity, the voice of Magnum P.I.'s mysteriously never-seen employer Robin Masters, was voiced by Orson Welles. Family Ties introduced the world to Michael J. Fox and Alex P. Keaton by proxy for the better part of the 1980s. And Family Ties has two sleeper spinoffs to be credited with. Michael Gross carried his role of Stephen Keaton from Family Ties to the spinoff Day by Day via his college roommate, Brian Harper, who is running a daycare center out of his house with his wife, much to the dismay of their flippant neighbor, Eileen Swift, played by a young Julia Louis Dreyfus. Day by Day ran for 33 episodes, and Family Ties even inspired creators to produce three failed pilots in 1987 that I would have totally watched if they had ever been made. To spin off Mallory Keaton's slacker artist boyfriend, Nick Moore. And the first version was called Taking It Home, where Nick goes back to Detroit to live with his grandpa and sister, but the actor playing the part of his grandpa died. So, they restructured another variation where Nick works at a juvenile delinquent center, which should have been a home run. But, producers weren't happy with that, so they tried one last scenario titled The Art of Being Nick, which moved Nick to the East Village where he works in a bookstore and lives with his sister and her son. Ultimately, NBC decided to keep the popular character on Family Ties. Scattered curiosity, Nick shares Fonzie's catchphrase. Hey, Sha-la-la-la. Here's a crossover you might have missed in the early 1990s and is thankfully relevant again. I feel like a dinosaur talking about some of these old shows. But after the ABC TV series Full House had already become an established hit on television for a few years, a breakout star from another ABC show, Family Matters, made an appearance at the Tanner Homestead on Full House. Steve Urkel. Did I do that? In an episode titled, Stephanie Gets Framed, Stephanie Tanner finds out that she needs glasses, and Urkel, who is written into the story as DJ's friend's cousin who is visiting San Francisco, there's a lazy premise, huh? And Urkel helps Stephanie deal with having to wear eyeglasses. It was the only time that the two shows ever crossed links, but... With the success of Netflix's recent reboot, Fuller House, maybe the less nerdy, now totally buff Jaleel White, will make an appearance to counsel today's Jody Sweeten once again. Have mercy. And I don't really know if Fuller House should be called a spinoff or even a reboot because the characters and actors are all the same people 
just older. Steve Urkel also visited the TV show Step by Step to counsel the character Mark with his doofus wisdom. However, the plausibility of this television crossover should be expunged because John Stamos had a cameo on an episode of Step by Step where he talks about playing the role of Jesse Kostopoulos on Full House, which shatters the time-space continuum of this universe. Somebody should have caught that. Both shows aired on the same network. Scattered Curiosity, another ABC series, Perfect Strangers, which ran for an impressive eight seasons as part of ABC's TGIF lineup, is responsible for Family Matters. Perfect Strangers was about an aspiring photographer named Larry Appleton who moves from Wisconsin into an apartment in Chicago and soon gets a knock on the door by his distant cousin from the Mediterranean island of Mepos, Balki Bartokamus, played by the acutely talented Bronson Pinchot. I think that's how you say his last name. And he, too, had a catchphrase, Don't be ridiculous. Family Matters was born in Season 3 of Perfect Strangers when Carl and Harriet Winslow move into the same Chicago apartment building as Larry and Balky in an episode called Crime Busters. Oh, it helps to know that Carl Winslow is a cop, played by Reginald Vell Johnson, who you might also recognize as the cop who helps Bruce Willis in my favorite Christmas movie, Die Hard. Anyway, the spinoff happens when Harriet Winslow, who works as the elevator operator of the building where Larry works in Perfect Strangers, is fired from her job and somehow turns her life around pretty quick in Family Matters, where... She is rehired by the same company to instead be the chief of security. You heard me right. Family Matters was supposed to be a Harriet spinoff. Yet, the show found much of its success with storylines involving her husband Carl being annoyed by their brainy, spectacled neighbor, Steve Quincy Urkel. Yes, that is his middle name. And Family Matters enjoyed a longer run than the show that bore it. And I have to say, it makes total sense to me that shows on the same network should cross over. It is a genius way to herd a popular show's established audience over to a brand new show with similar flair. Now, it would be a unique phenomenon for the same thing to happen between rival networks, which is maybe what made it so appealing to ABC and Fox in the 1990s when each network had David E. Kelly programs on the air. So, ABC's The Practice crossed over with Fox's Ally McBeal, Fox's Boston Public, and its own non-David E. Kelly show, Gideon's Crossing. Now, I did not move to New York City until after the shows Mad About You, Seinfeld, and Friends were all in syndication. 
But I'd say that Seinfeld most accurately portrays the reality of New York apartment square footage. The creators of Friends didn't seem to think that we would notice, which is weird because Friends was based on their lives and friends from the time that they lived in New York City themselves. Now, all three of these TV shows were set in Manhattan, and a case can even be made that they all existed in the same New York universe. There are connections between all three shows if you are willing to dismiss a few inconsistencies that make it work. So, Lisa Kudrow played the part of Phoebe Buffay on Friends, and on Mad About You, Lisa Kudrow played Phoebe Buffay's twin sister, Ursula, who appears on both shows. Then, Helen Hunt's character from Mad About You crossed over onto Friends when she mistakes Phoebe for Ursula inside the central perk. And then, on an episode of Mad About You, Cosmo Kramer, Michael Richards' character from Seinfeld, sublets an apartment from Paul Reiser's character, Paul. But the comic book guys out there will point out that on one episode of Seinfeld, the gang is seen watching an episode of Mad About You, and also the fact that Courtney Cox makes an appearance on an episode of Seinfeld not as her friend's character, Monica. Yada, yada, yada. But of all three of these truly exquisite successful television shows, only Friends sired a spinoff for Matt LeBlanc called Joey. How you doing? Scooby-Doo had so many guest stars collaborate with the gang of meddling kids in the mystery machine, and I'm not even sure that all of these qualify as crossovers, but you have the Harlem Globetrotters, Speed Buggy, Don Knotts, Kiss, The Addams Family, Aquaman, Mama Cass Elliot, Sonny Bono and Cher, Batman and Robin, The Three Stooges, and Josie and the Pussycats, just to name a few. And I think it's pretty safe to say that more people worldwide would recognize Yogi Bear and Boo Boo before Huckleberry Hound. But the Hound is responsible for spinning off the smarter-than-the-average bears off into their own TV series to steal picnic baskets. Scattered Curiosity... A few other famous characters that were introduced on the Huckleberry Hound show are Snagglepuss, Quickdraw McGraw, and Magilla Gorilla. Bonus curiosity, if you thought Huckleberry Hound was named for Huckleberry Finn, you are correct. But did you know that Yogi Bear was almost instead named Huckleberry Bear? What's in the name, right? Everything. And that is why some bands never rehearse, because they can't even decide on a friggin' band name. Of course, cartoons have a much easier time producing spinoffs because they can easily be explained away and don't really even have to make sense. One cartoon from the 1980s was unique in that the show itself 
was derived from the toy action figures that made the program profitable before it was even a TV show. Repeat, it was a line of toys before it was a cartoon. I speak, of course, of the extremely homoerotic adventures of He-Man and the underpants of the universe. Okay, it was called the Masters of the Universe. And I never thought it was weird at all that most of the characters had rockin' hard abs, ripped biceps and calves, while running around in furry underpants that looked like woolly diapers. But I was a huge He-Man fan and had all of the toys as well. I was exactly who they were marketing to. And the strategy hooked me on to their spin-off series, when Prince Adam, He-Man's alter ego, travels to Etheria to give his sister She-Ra, the Princess of Power, a magical sword and her own TV series. Now, I have very few lucid memories from my childhood, but I full-out remember this crossover episode in particular, and even though I was only like six or seven years old, I remember thinking that She-Ra was very pretty. The Looney Tunes, which we talked about in our recent episode, Triple D's, gave us Tiny Toon Adventures, The Plucky Duck Show, Pinky and the Brain, and Animaniacs, and DuckTales, which we also covered heavily in Triple D's, realized the potential of its less rich ducks with their spin-offs, Darkwing Duck and Quack Pack. Even the MTV slackers Beavis and Butthead managed to pull off a full-length feature film, Beavis and Butthead Do America, and a spin-off in the form of their exact opposite morose female classmate, Daria. And, to some smaller extent, the show King of the Hill. In that, Hank Hill sounds exactly like the old man Anderson that Beavis and Butthead would frequently terrorize on their show. But let me be clear, I am completely aware that it is not actually the same character. Mike Judge just makes very little distinction in their voices. A truly extraordinary TV crossover happened during the series finale of The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air when they took a fresh approach to the crossover by bringing back a previously successful and long-since-off-the-air television show, The Jeffersons. Will Smith's rich uncle Philip Banks is selling their mansion to George Jefferson. And if that wasn't surprising enough, it gets even better because another potential buyer of the mansion makes an appearance, Mr. Drummond and Arnold Jackson from Different Strokes. What you talking about? And Arnold Jackson, the late Gary Coleman, also visited another rich sitcom kid, Ricky Stratton, for another classic sitcom crossover on the show Silver Spoons. We're gonna find our way together. Oh my God, do you remember the train that you could ride all over their house? Now, the world don't move to the beat of just one drum. I mean, you take the good, you take the bad, you take them both, and there you have our next crossover. The role of Mrs. Garrett, played by Charlotte Ray, managed to be Mrs. Garrett on both different strokes and the facts of life. 
because they exist in the same universe. Tootie and Natalie, too. And Arnold's older brother, Willis Jackson, appears on an episode of The Facts of Life. And without The Facts of Life, we wouldn't have well-documented evidence of a young George Clooney with a conservative but respectable 1980s poofy mullet, also famously known as hockey hair, an ape drape, or a Kentucky waterfall here in the United States. Growing Pains was one of my absolute favorite TV shows and set the scene for another TV series that I enjoyed called Just the Ten of Us. Mike Seaver, Kirk Cameron of Growing Pains, accidentally gets his gym teacher, Coach Lubbock, fired from his high school, forcing Coach Lubbock, his wife, his six daughters and two sons to move from Staten Island, New York to Eureka, California to start a new life as the coach at a Catholic school. Though it didn't make it into syndication, just the ten of us ran for a total of 47 episodes. Perhaps one of those precocious kids should have had a catchphrase. Obviously, Dr. Fraser Crane, Kelsey Grammer, was a character on Cheers who was spun off into a massively successful show in its own right, and many of the Cheers characters did pay a visit to the show, including Cliff Clavin, Norm Peterson, Lilith Crane, Sam Malone, Diane Chambers, and Woody Boyd, which makes complete sense. Making less sense would be the Cheers characters who also find themselves on the sitcom Wings. Cliff Clavin, Norm Peterson, Fraser Crane, Lilith Crane, and Rebecca Howe. And while I've mentioned Rebecca Howe, there is one more thing about Cheers that should be noted. And that is how tough it must have been for Kirstie Alley to come into the long-running series after the very popular pairing of Sam and Diane that had been established by Shelley Long. Kirstie Alley was her own woman in character, and she was commanding, awesome, and completely up to the task. I have always been a fan of Kirstie Alley. Summer School, Drop Dead Gorgeous, Look Who's Talking, Hello, Scattered Curiosity, Cheers actually had one other spin-off, the short-lived series The Torellis, which centered on the ex-husband of Rhea Perlman's character from Cheers, Carla Torelli, and his ditzy new wife, who have left Boston to start a new life in Las Vegas, Nevada as a TV repairman. And what happens in Vegas doesn't always stay in Vegas, because the characters from Ellen, Coach, Grace Under Fire, and The Drew Carey Show were all seen together in Las Vegas at the same time, and there is video evidence of all of it. So technically, they too live in the same TV universe. Another TV gimmick that I totally remember seeing as it aired was on November 9th, 1991, when the Golden Girls, Empty Nest, and Nurses 
all got affected by the same hurricane in each of their shows that night. And it was such a rating success that a year later, the trio all experienced a full moon on the same evening as well. Scattered curiosity, the creator of Family Guy, Seth MacFarlane, pays homage to the Hurricane Trilogy with his tripart crossover involving his three TV shows, Family Guy, American Dad, and The Cleveland Show. And the fathers who star in each show have a big standoff at the end, and each one of the characters are all voiced by Seth MacFarlane. Now here's your moment of zen. Is the catchphrase that has been used by every host of The Daily Show, starting with its original host, Craig Kilborn. The Daily Show helped a lot of anchors move on to similar shows like The Colbert Rapport, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, Full Frontal with Samantha Bee, and The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore. Which, by the way, is another brilliant TV show that Comedy Central decided to kill for some sick reason. Others that I greatly miss are At Midnight, The Sarah Silverman Program, John Benjamin Has a Van, and Important Things with Dimitri Martin. Breaking Bad gave birth to the truly captivating prequel spinoff, Better Call Saul, which is equal as a prequel, if not better than its parent series, and utilizes familiar characters in such a fascinating way that makes me want to go back and re-binge Breaking Bad. Bob Odenkirk is a master of both comedy and drama. He has the same je ne sais quoi of Steve Martin, Billy Crystal, Kristen Wiig, Zach Galifianakis, Jim Carrey, and Robin Williams in the way that they are able to be shatteringly funny and dramatic with equal precision. I have made it abundantly clear on Scattered Curiosities that I am a huge Walking Dead nerd. So of course, I watched the spin-off series Fear the Walking Dead, which takes place in the same universe and time of the original series, just in another part of the country, Los Angeles versus Atlanta. And it has admittedly taken me a little while to warm up to the newer characters and storylines, but I think that this past season, that they truly found their momentum. Congrats, deadheads. And while we're on the topic of supernaturally-themed horror TV shows, the origin of Buffy the Vampire Slayer is unique because unlike other TV shows based on movies, which are usually met with less acclaim than their parent film, i.e. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Dirty Dancing, Uncle Buck, Dangerous Minds, Rush Hour, Working Girl, and Clueless, to name a few, Buffy was far more successful and better received than the movie that preceded it. And the movie even had Christy Swanson, Luke Perry, and Donald Sutherland. And I'm actually kind of a fan of the movie, and I never really watched the TV show myself, but my family definitely did, so I am aware that TV's Buffy, Sarah Michelle Gellar, was actually romantically involved with a vampire named Angel, whom 
after several visits to her TV series, was cast back to hell by Buffy and recast in his own spin-off series titled Angel. And then the genre was flipped around in the 20-teens with the show The Vampire Diaries featuring vampires as the protagonists who spun off the series The Originals, which is a television show greatly centered around vampire politics in New Orleans, which is a fitting setting because as we know from our Scattered Curiosities episode American Zigzag, New Orleans has some pretty significant connections to vampire folklore. Two other shows that I never really watched had more than one crossover episode with one another, Boy Meets World and Sabrina the Teenage Witch. In an episode of Boy Meets World called The Witches of Penbrook, Jack and Eric fight over Jack's new girlfriend Millie, played by Candace Cameron, who is later revealed to be an evil witch. And at the end of the episode, Sabrina, Melissa Joan Hart, makes a cameo appearance as Eric's date. Then, in the episode No Guts, No Cory, Salem the Cat, from Sabrina the Teenage Witch, sends the Boy Meets World cast back in time to World War II. And Boy Meets World produced a spin-off series that was much like Fuller House, taking place 14 years later, in the form of Girl Meets World. Ray Romano played Ray Baroni on the shows Everybody Loves Raymond, The King of Queens, and The Nanny. And a real-life crossover embedded in one of these make-believe ones occurs in an episode of The Nanny when Fran Drescher is going to her high school reunion and Ray Romano plays one of her classmates, Ray Baroni, because the two actors were actual high school classmates at Hillcrest High School in Queens, New York. Ray Baroni also visited Dr. Becker's office on the TV show Becker. Another show that used a high school reunion to merge shows from the same network was Fox's New Girl, starring Zoe Deschanel, when her character, Jess Day, is driving she and her friends to New York City for Schmidt's high school reunion, when Andy Samberg, Jake Peralta from Fox's cop show Brooklyn Nine-Nine, commandeers their vehicle. Another TV cliché. And I have only seen a handful of New Girl episodes, but Prince guest starred on one of them. So, you know, it must be good if he was involved. And a dramatic show centered around teenage angst and sexy 20-somethings was Beverly Hills 90210, which introduced characters from Melrose Place. In the same category... Gossip Girl gave birth to a short-lived series called Valley Girls, and Pretty Little Liars gave rise to a show called Ravenswood. And some other classic TV catchphrases that we didn't get to today are Just the Facts, Ma'am, from Dragnet. Who loves you, baby? Telly Savalas' lollipop-sucking detective Kojak. Good evening, Alfred Hitchcock presents... 
Lucy, you got some splendid to do. Ricky Ricardo and I Love Lucy. Bazinga from The Big Bang Theory. Bam, Emerald Lagasse. Cut It Out from Full House. How Rude, also from Full House. And You Got It, Dude, also from Full House. Danger, Will Robinson, the robot from Lost in Space. Hey, 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 was Fat Albert. Hey, 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 Freddy reruns Stubbs from What's Happening and What's Happening Now. And I will leave you with a famous movie catchphrase that almost wasn't. In the movie The Terminator, Arnold Schwarzenegger's line was actually written, I'll come back. But he made it his own by instead saying, I'll be back. And so will we. Maybe even with our own spinoff. Hmm. To help us keep the curiosities coming, please rate us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show.